Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. So let's talk about emails. We've got this one email from Kim in Santa Cruz, and Kim writes, Juven Healing Product. I would like to know your con- your thoughts on this wound healing supplement. Uh, it contains uh, glutamine, argan- arginine, and a number of other products. Uh, two products are recommended for day. And uh, also, if someone is sensitive to MSG, do you avoid products with glutamine? Is the product contraindicated for people with high blood pressure or headaches. So this uh, Juven is, a, is from the makers of Insure, which is a product I wish, I heartily wish would just evaporate because there are so many other better, uh, healthier nutritional drinks, but this one is the one that has marketed to all the hospitals. And it's, uh, it's basically a milkshake. <laughs> but getting on to Juven, Juven is a... Uh, a group of uh, compounds, arginine, glutamine, uh, a product called HMB that's, that stabilizes cell membranes and uh, references offered. Uh, yeah, it's probably a decent support. It's probably overpriced. It does have vitamin C and zinc in it, and those are important for wound healing. And it does have... Uh, collagen protein in it, and glutamine and arginine, and I think you should drink bone broth, which has all of the above, maybe bone broth with a side of um, orange slices or orange zest, and you'll have yourself a uh, wound support product that will be without the artificial fla- uh, artificial colors and anti-caking chemicals and the other stuff that uh, is in Juven under inert ingredients. I'm never sure those inert ingredients are all that inert. So I thought that we would spend a little time uh, talking today about uh, just a whole bunch of different uh, articles that I have here that have been waiting to be revealed or discussed with you. We're going to start off with one that's uh, quite recent. This came out on April 5th from UC Riverside, uh, looking at water in California Central Valley and putting up a rather large alert about high levels of manganese in private untreated well water systems, but also in public water systems at concentrations that studies have shown can have adverse health effects. This was published in the journal Environmental Science and Technology, and it mapped the concentration areas with uh, income levels. And would you be surprised to learn that the areas with the, uh, that nearly half of the domestic well water users in Central Valley live in de- disadvantaged communities? as defined by average income. Well, I wouldn't be surprised about that as all, but within this population, 89% have a high likelihood that that water is highly contaminated with manganese. And manganese 
can cause cognitive disabilities and motor control issues in children, and in adults, it can interfere with the with movement and cause a Parkinson-like syndrome that would likely be misdiagnosed if the person went to a clinic. It would probably be misdiagnosed as Parkinson's disease or pre-Parkinson's or Parkinson's syndrome. So the the researchers used a benchmark of 300 parts per billion of manganese to assess water quality. So let me throw that out again, 300 parts per billion. And in this is the level that in studies has been shown with neurological development issues in fetuses and infants during their early growth periods. And it's thought likely that that might not be where the level needs to be. In fact, in Canada, where uh, where manganese is a big issue as a primary contaminant, there are results that show levels at 100 parts per billion. And I'm reminded of how lead levels, acceptable lead levels in water, marched down in the 80s and 90s from, I believe, a level of 30 to a level of 10, and now it's like, yeah, we don't really want any lead in our water at all if we can help it, because even very small amounts have been shown to create uh, neurodevelopmental problems in children. So how do you get these metals out? Well, you can use uh, precipitation filters, water softeners, for example, reverse osmosis uh, systems. You can't get them out readily with chlorination by itself, but you can do chlorination and filtering and bind most of it. So that's something to be thought of. However, uh, you could dig deeper wells. That might be uh, that might be helpful, but uh, unfortunately, when we've looked at studies looking at deeper depths, it really didn't change the number of wells likely to be contaminated. Uh, arsenic and manganese show up together, and if there's uh, a well that uh, has arsenic in it, it's labeled unsafe. But not if they uh, are contaminated or concentrated with manganese. And then we have the hexavalent chromium, and we have all of these other things that have made our way into the water table. Our next article is about something that really kind of relates to this, which is mitochondria and metal toxicity and concentrations of metals really profoundly mess up the basic function of your mitochondria. Mitochondria are small little appliances. They're called organelles, but basically you could think of them as a cellular appliance. And this is the cellular appliance that turns food into energy. Rather important uh, aspect of cellular physiology and our physiology. This study looked at excessive exercise training and mitochondrial functioning. And as you increase the intensity of your exercise, the mitochondria, when the cell's energy factories, uh, it improve. They work harder. And yet, if you talk to athletes, and my husband was a track star in his time, and he tells me that 
if you overexercised and overtrained, there was a point where your performance just crashes. And veterinarians, of course, have talked about this in racehorses where there's money involved. And so you definitely have uh, really careful work being done to make sure that that horse is at its peak moment when it gets on the track. And objective measurements of this lore have really not been found until these investigators in Sweden did a study where they did muscle biopsies and glucose glucose tolerance testing on six healthy women and five healthy men, brave volunteers, as they participated in three weeks of progressive high-intensity interval training. And then they had a fourth recovery week in which their retraining was reduced. So during the high-intensity training purposes, uh, mitochondrial functioning actually improved progressively in all of the participants, as did physical performance and maximum oxygen consumption, which you would expect. However, with extreme high-intensity exercise, the mitochondrial function, particularly the the ability to make ATP, diminished substantially. So if they pushed too hard, they were doing cellular biopsies on these people, they could show that the actual mitochondria crashed and burned and stopped making ATP. And at that point, just to go on a little bit with the physiology, although they did not discuss this in this article, when you still are demanding energy in that circumstance, then your mitochondria start breaking, you're breaking up the ADP. They start uh, basically sending out ADP and your cells can burn ADP, but when they burn it, they take another phosphate off and then you're left with something called adenosine monophosphate, which is not useful for energy and is also very, very difficult to recharge. So it's like you take a battery and uh, it's in, you can recharge it over and over again. That's the ADP to ATP, and that can happen very fast. In fact, it happens constantly. We have about 17 seconds of ATP in our body uh, in terms of just your physiologic needs. So when you're pushing it, you're probably getting your reserve down to two or three seconds of ATP, and you're just taking every bit of ATP of ADP, the leftover after the phosphate's been removed and the energy has been been grabbed from that phosphate pond, and you're just jamming those on, and those mitochondria are working really hard to regenerate. But if you push them too hard, then you lose the ADP and it takes a very long time. And in people with chronic fatigue, we often see something called the push crash, which is where they, they go a little bit, they work a little bit too hard, and they are so wiped out, they can barely get out of bed for a couple of days. That's when you've actually gone down to the AMP level. And you won't die, but you won't be able to do much else. So the researchers, having established that, then studied a second group of 15 endurance athletes and 12 match controls who trained for less than seven hours a week, the control group, that is. And they found that glucose regulation was actually worse in the endurance athletes. They actually had more uh, minutes daily when they were either hyperglycemic or hypoglycemic. So overtraining pushes your body, and at some point it pushes it to an impairment 
it's not peak functioning anymore. And so we now are going to be, now that we've got some really good cellular evidence, I'm hoping that there will be more work done to help us identify biomarkers for this that maybe we could look at in urine that would tell us uh, when we've overtrained, perhaps a certain level of lactic acid or a certain pH shift from pre and post. Uh, I would think shift in pH, if you haven't eaten or drank anything, a shift in urine pH could indicate overtraining, and that might be something to look at and see if it correlates. That's just me blue-skying. But realistically, moderation in all things, if you're including in your high-intensity interval training, you know, pushing all out for 30 to 45 seconds, and then resting, and then pushing all for a minute or 90 seconds, and then doing it again, that's what has been studied and shown to be most beneficial. Don't get creative on those intervals, because there's a good reason not to. So we have uh, another email, this one from Paul, and uh Paul writes, uh, Paul's in Santa Cruz. He writes, hi, I pushed, uh, pulled a deer tick off my leg this morning. He's been aboard for about 12 hours. The internet says it has to be attached at least 36 to spread Borrelia. I hope so. I've had many ticks before, but this one really left a welt behind my knee. Yanked it off fully active. Doesn't appear to have filled with any blood. I called 211 and got a few numbers, but no real info. Thoughts? Thanks, Dr. D. Well, Paul. Hot off the press here. Uh, first of all, 24 hours, 36 hours. I mean, 24 hours is what I use as my, I'm going to monitor this person. 36 is, is a new one and probably science-based, and I just didn't get the memo. But yeah, if it's done 12 hours, don't worry about it. That reaction that you're seeing, that's tick saliva. And very similar mechanism to the reaction you get from a mosquito bite, except the mosquito bite is a T-cell reaction, so it's delayed by a couple of days. But you're getting antibodies to the saliva, rushing to the scene of the crime because they think that's a bacteria. And it is a immediate and very early reaction, whereas the rash of Lyme disease, which is actually a flat rash, it's not a raised bump, by the way, is... 48 to uh, 48 hours to two weeks after the tick bite. So uh, you, those immediate reactions are exactly that. They're in, an immediate uh, alarm. It's the first it's the first responders of the immune system showing up at the scene of the of the bite to protect you. And it's a little itchy and unpleasant and sometimes even sore, but it's a good sore. So don't be worried about that. You are fine. And we have a person who sent an email uh, question for Dr. Don. I recently, this is from Michael, and Michael says, I recently suffered a leg injury that I have health, uh, self-diagnosed as a hamstring injury. How best can I care for this and achieve a speedy recovery? Is it ice, heat, compression, massage, or exercise? Well, Michael, let's start with uh, some clues about the nature of the injury. I mean, a hamstring injury is microtrauma, maybe macrotrauma, you're tearing muscle fibers. And it could be at the microsarcomere level, or it could be at the fibril level, which is a bit bigger. The point is uh, timing. 
is everything here when you talk about ice. If you have a sudden sharp pain, you're working and you get a sudden sharp pain, that's an ice pain, okay? In Chinese medicine, they call that a yang pain. That sharp, sometimes tearing pain, there's going to be enough tearing to bleed. And you want to keep the bleeding down and you want to limit the release of the inflammatory mediators, which means limiting the release of blood flow to the area, because along with that blood, there's going to come a bunch of immune cells and they're going to dump a lot of signal, pro-inflammatory signals that will turn on the inflammatory pathways in the cells locally and start churning out those prostaglandins, which is what happens with microtrauma uh, as well, but it happens much more slowly. So in the case of microtrauma uh, or uh, or overstressing of the muscle that is more subtle, no sharp sudden pain, just maybe fatigue, and uh, a slow onset of achiness, typically 18 to uh 48 hours after, depending on the individual. People have a characteristic latency for how long it takes over-exercise to, uh, to, of, uh, of a muscle to give them a problem. Now, if, it's a, if it was a sudden pain and an early pain, ice is the first thing you want to do, and then move to uh, heat at the you know, roughly 24 to 48-hour mark. Uh, it, compression is often good with those acute, sharp yang pain. Uh, but if it's a slow pain, compression probably isn't going to do much for it. And in fact, that's where massage comes in. If you have something where you've got broken blood vessels, obviously you're, when you massage it, you're breaking up the clot. So you want to give that clot a chance to stabilize, and that happens at about 24 hours. So after that, if you want to start massaging the boo-boo, it'll hurt, but you might be able to uh, speed up the recovery by increasing blood flow in. Uh, In terms of exercise, the key point with hamstring and groin injuries is that that thing's going to want to shorten. So what you want to do is it is heat the muscle before and after your exercise, gentle exercise initially, and a lot of stretching, very gentle stretching, just to the point of feeling a stretch, not to the point of pain. And maybe some post-exercise uh, cross-massage so that you keep those fibers from binding up and keep the fascia loose because if there's any inflammatory mediators at all, it makes the the fascia sticky. And the fascia is kind of the uh, sort of a membrane over the muscle. And it's supposed to help things slip together, uh, slip against each other. But when it gets sticky, it binds things. Kind of like when you get a book wet. You remember books with pages, right? So when you get a book wet and the pages stick together, you have to take a knife or something and try to carefully spread, uh, get the adhesion to go. Well, that's where that deep massage that people often do uh, for a persistent pain comes in because you're really going after the layers. In Chinese medicine, we do a lot of work with uh, deep massage. We, it's called, there's techniques called gua sha, 
where you have a, a blade. Sometimes they'll use the edge of a Chinese spoon and they'll just really wail away on the tissue. That's a great thing for hamstring injuries that are when you're, say, five, six days out and you're still having problems, trying to break up those adhesions, trying to mobilize the tissues, that's when you want to go there. But the main thing is keep stretching as it heals while it's hurting. Don't overstretch, but don't let it heal short because it's a real bear, particularly with groin injuries, to get them to to lengthen out again. And there's uh, commonly people get into a loop where the short muscle gets re-injured over and over again and they never really get back their earlier flexibility. So that's the thing we want to guard against. And actually, I had uh, an interesting uh, article, which I'm going to reprise in this context. Uh, I had actually used this when uh, we had a question in the email a few months ago about adhesions, surgical adhesions. We have got Injuries causing adhesions. Well, what is surgery but a big injury? And post-operative adhesions affect people after all kinds of surgeries, orthopedic, uh, but particularly abdominal surgeries and chest surgeries. And so these are circumstances where as the tissues heal, remember those inflammatory uh, compounds like the prostaglandins I mentioned, they make the tissues sticky and the and the, the the fibroblasts move in and sew everything up, but it, they sew things together that shouldn't be stuck together. And pathological fibrotic connections can form between the organ surfaces and the walls of the surrounding body cavities. And these can be really, uh, really various. They can be thin films of connective tissue that you can sort of stretch out to thick fibrous bands that actually are vascularized. They have their own nerves and their own blood vessels. And you can imagine when those get stretched that it hurts like crazy. And we know that adhesions occur in 50 to 90% of all operations. So the focus that we've mainly had is on the pelvic and the abdominal and the thoracic, but these adhesions can also happen all over the place, and that includes in the shoulder, in the uh, hip. I've had a lot of patients have persistent post-operative pain from their joint replacement, and we do another MRI, and the joint looks beautiful, but yet there's pain. And the orthopedic surgeon is like, hey, I did my job, the joint's great, it's stable, you know, not my problem. And of course, He's not an expert in wound healing. He's not an expert in adhesions. Maybe we should be teaching our orthopedic surgeons what to do about that, but we aren't. So we're left with an orphan problem. And what we do know is that there are lots of both pharmacological and uh, herbal strategies for redu- that are more or less proven, depending upon uh the research that we look at that can help prevent uh, adhesion formation, and yet they're not widely used. So I, I thought I'd take a moment and go over some of them. Uh, it's it's sort of interesting uh, which drugs uh, work. Uh, one of the ones that really surprised me was angiotensin-converting enzyme. And this is ACE1 
inhibitors. These are used for blood pressure management. And it's been studied and shown that they target epidermal growth factor and a number of signaling cascades and that you can reduce uh, you can reduce adhesions in uh, various models for this, but there are only a few clinical studies. Uh, another one that's uh, that kind of jumps up at me because it's so commonly used is statins. Now, who knew, right? Statins had uh, some odd properties. They're highly anti-inflammatory, which is probably partially, if not totally, responsible for their uh, reduction in cardiovascular risk. It's not about the cholest- uh, about the cholesterol so much as it is about the inflammation. But when you give statins after um, abdominal surgery in rats, you get many few uh, fewer adhesions, probably because it causes an uh, an upregulation of something. Uh, well, a downregulation of something called MMP9, which is a regulator of matrix production. That's the stuff that your cells make that is outside of them and that that mediates what those uh, fibroblasts that are going around stitching things together do. And uh, fluvastatin, the statin is, of course, an anti-cytokine. It drops the levels of IL-1B, probably why it was beneficial in covid and that was one of those uh, discoveries that came out in the in 2020 in the Lancet. It didn't go through peer review, but it was just like, well, we've sort of decided this drug is safe. And look, it seems to be helping. Let's just use it. And uh, if it's a if it's a, if it's not doing anything, it's certainly not hurting anything. Turns out that uh, good old ibuprofen and other non-steroidals reduce uh, the formation of adhesions. And uh, that's rather interesting to me. And there's other, uh, other, form- other compounds that have uh, benefit. So I would like to suggest that if you are about to have surgery, maybe what you want to do is consider some of these alternatives in terms of uh, adding them. And you could go on a statin just to reduce adhesions after uh, for abdominal surgery, particularly if you've had adhesions before. And like I say, it will not hurt. There's some evidence that it will help. And, you know, what the heck? Really, what the heck? And we're going to go to our... Uh, first caller of the evening, and that is Tom. Hello, Tom. Welcome to the program. Hi. Hi. Uh, Question with two quick questions. Go for it. Okay. Uh, One is, uh, what do you know about radishes and their health uh, benefits or detriments? And the other is about stevia, that widely known replacement for all the artificial ones and for sugar. Okay. Well, let's start with radishes. Radishes are great. They are technically crucifers, which means that they provide uh, uh, glycosinolates, which are a really important bioflavonoid. Your body uh, actually converts that. If you have a healthy microbiome, you convert that into some very 
very powerful antioxidants and also uh, detoxification agents, things that improve your levels of glutathione. And glutathione is the world is the body's master antioxidant. It's in all of your cells. It's super important to mitochondria functioning, which has already played uh, a role in this uh, in this broadcast. And it helps your body get rid of toxic metals like manganese, which, oh yeah, that too has been something we talked about on this program. So plus the fiber, it's good for your microbiome. So very good stuff. Uh, the radishes uh, in general foods that are pungent are good for you. They have stuff in them that helps your liver get healthier, sort of like high-intensity interval training for the liver if you eat a lot of uh, these agents. Now, uh, the second question was about stevia. And let's talk about stevia, the plant, which whose name is sweet leaf. And the reason I have to start with the plant is that the, the a lot of the research is done on the plant. And so from that standpoint, I can tell you that it's a healthy substitute for sugar. It does not raise your uh, insulin levels. It does not fool you, it, your body into uh, putting out more sugar. So that's all very good. It uh, doesn't give you the microbiome profile that would otherwise happen. You, When you talk about some of the other sweeteners, like uh I'm trying I'm of course all of anything that's got caloric sweeteners in it but also uh some of the uh aspartame which is equal is one that actually does fool your body's receptors and it fools the microbiome and so unfortunately what happens is you get the microbiome ready for you thinking it's going to get calories and then it doesn't so it's disappointed and it actually causes the cal- it causes the blood sugar to rise because it was expecting that, and it has ways of signaling that cre- that will in turn on glucagon, which is the hormone that causes your body to burn stored sugar glycogen and r- throw it into the bloodstream. So it really is a bad idea to use aspartame in l- large amounts. Uh, Splenda has the same effect, unfortunately, and also Splenda has chloride ions in it, which you should not drink pool water, and you probably don't want free chloride ions running around either. So there's a debate about whether or not Splenda is actually good for your microbiome, uh, and so I think we should steer away from it. Where you get into problems is the industrialization of this and how and how the extraction process is done and what else is in there. So the powdered versions of stevia, I I steer away from. I'm really looking for something that is as close to a tincture as I can get, because once you start adding anti-caking agents and turning something that is normally a liquid into a powder, you start messing around with it, and we effectively have a frankenfood. So uh, I hope that answers your question. If Any follow-up? I guess not. So uh, thank you, Tom, for your question. And let's get just, let's see, we're good for time. Let's get a a little uh, geeky. We're going to talk about germ warfare using viruses. 
And this is a study, this is a study from, uh, actually it's a review from JAMA, March 14th. Uh, the title is, As Superbugs Flourish, Bacteriophage Therapy Recaptures Researchers' Interest. I found this article very interesting. It's amazing how often politics gets involved in science. And in this case, uh, McCarthyism probably, among other things, turned us away from a promising line of antimicrobial research and uh, antibacterial work has probably been set back at least a generation because, well, let's, it's all about the personalities and the politics here. But let's first go to the start, the present. So there were three weeks in 2020 uh, where the medical team for this poor guy who got admitted with sepsis from diabetic foot ulcers were just standing by and watching as they dripped billions of viral particles into his veins. Now, that's really hard to get your brain around as a doctor. I mean, we are trying to keep viruses out of the body. And in this case, they were giving this guy a truckload of viruses, IV. And they were doing that because they'd run out of other options for this patient. Typical antibiotics hadn't worked, and even the heaviest cocktails were feeble against these multiple drug-resistant infections that were spreading through the guy's blood. And about a month later, because he lived, they started giving him aerosolized, nebulized, nebulized PAGE therapy because they actually wiped out the blood infection, but then he started getting a pulmonary infection and was on a ventilator. And he had every he had an everything resistant acinetobacter infection, and that is a nasty one. So why were we using these bacteria? And basically because the the immunologist and uh that was in charge of his case had read an article in the foreign medical literature uh about a case report that had happened in Israel. And he ended up uh, connecting to a microbiologist in the U.S. Army who was on the paper, who connected him with an ex-Navy officer's startup that was a bacteriophage startup that was making this therapy. This therapy is a century old, and it's not used in the United States. Now, but between 2019 and 2020, antimicrobial resistant hospital infections had increased 15% for seven highly resistant pathogens. And about there was a 78% rise in this carbipenem resistant acinetobacter, and most of those were hospital acquired infections. And then what happens? COVID, right? So that was a perfect storm. We had one analysis found that three in four patients with COVID nineteen received antibiotics in the pen if they were hospitalized in the pandemic's early months. Now, only ten percent of them actually had bacterial infections. This was the the case of the just in case mentality, and we're we're scraping the bottom of the barrel here on drug resistant bacteria. There's this old World War II era, uh, era antibiotic called cholestin, and 
it's a dog, really. It's very highly toxic. It's not that effective, but it's the last resort. It's the Hail Mary pass because we've run out of options. And, you know, there's phages were discovered a decade before penicillin in 20, in 1915. An, um, an ambitious, they're calling him an ambitious self-taught microbiologist. You just don't find ambitious self-taught microbiologists in the modern world, do you? But anyway, he's growing stuff on his Petri dishes like any good self-taught microbiologist. And he was investigating out an outbreak of diarrhea uh, among cavalrymen stationed outside Paris. And what he realized was these little halos on his Petri dishes were dead bacteria that weren't growing in the medium because they were being infected by phage viruses. Like COVID infects us, the phage viruses were infecting the bacteria, hijacking their molecular machinery, you know, making millions of copies of themselves and then bursting the cells open like balloons. They were killing the bacteria selectively because, hey, they had a preferred host. Uh, But the problem was Felix Durrell was probably a really annoying person, and he had an enemy. Unfortunately, his enemy was pretty darn powerful. William Summers, Professor Emeritus in the History of Medicine at Yale University, and, uh, no, I'm sorry, that's not, that's who's writing about it. The actual enemy was uh, Jules Bourdais, the, a Nobel Prize winning director of the Pasteur Institute. So you got the French guy with the juice who's established, and you got the upstart, annoying French guy who's actually figured this out. So Durrell was forced out of the Pasteur uh, Institute, exiled by the scientific community, and he washes up in Eastern Europe. And he starts a phage center in Tbilisi, Georgia, and then one in Poland, and then one in Russia. And so in the 1930s, phage therapy is being given because there are no antibiotics, and there's dozens of case series in the U.S., and a study is showing that it works. But then in 1934, JAMA comes out saying, oh, it's lacking dramatic results, blah 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 And in 1941, uh, another saying, as study saying, well, there isn't, there's a serious lack of acceptable scientific evidence. And this is about the time that we've got penicillin. And I mean, penicillin is impressive and it works. It's, you can produce it readily and it was so miraculous and impressive that the phages just got swept aside. But meanwhile, in Eastern Europe, they continue to do it. And then basically what happens is the Red Scare, right? So McCarthyism in the 1950s, anybody who wanted to do research on something that was coming out of Russia was probably going to be branded a communist and booted off their university because if you didn't boot off the first communist, you were going to find a whole bunch of other people being branded as communists. It was a witch hunt back then. And it was, uh, you know, a time of great injustice. We'll just put it that way. Now, this happens in England in about 2010 now. We're fast forwarded a bit. And we have an eight-year-old girl with cystic fibrosis. And she has 
a mycobacterium abscesses. This is basically a friend of a relative, first cousin of tuberculosis, uh, but different than the one that we think of as the pulmonary infection. She's only got it because she's got this really thick, gooey mucus in her lungs that acts like culture media, and she can't get rid of that mucus by coughing it up because it's too thick. So she walks around like a Petri dish, and anything she breathes takes root and grows. She's treated with these phages, and it's it works. It saves her life. She's they've gotten into the bacteria have uh, gotten into her liver. She's starting to lose blood flow to her organs, and they give her a cocktail of three phages. Two of them have been uh, genetically engineered, and nine days later, she's leaving the hospital, and she's one of the first cases that really got people interested uh, in phage therapy for treatment, drug-resistant mycobacteria, for which we basically have nothing. So there have been some couple of studies have come out in the teens that really blew the field open. And just recently, between 20 and 16, the funding for phage research quadrupled. It's, people are really getting on top of it. So let's throw some cold water on this because it's it's up to the regulators to figure out how to do this and make it mainstream. And there's great potential in phage therapy, but most of the data has come from case reports and animal studies. And how do we do it, right? We have to teach ourselves. We invented those AIDS drugs back in the 90s, but we didn't know how much to give. And we didn't know whether whether to give them singly or in combination. It took us another 10 years to figure out how to use the stuff so that we could turn what was a rapid, a rapid lethal disease into a chronic condition. You know, we can't, I can't say enough about the amazing work that was done to change AIDS from what it was when I started practicing medicine to what it is now. So there, NIH is now funding multiple large-scale trials, trials of phage therapy, particularly for cystic fibrosis and persistent urinary tract infections, stuff where the host resistance is not working well because either in the cystic fibrosis, because you're walking around with agar in your uh, lungs, or in case of persistent urinary tract infections, because you've got a biofilm that's grown in your urinary tract that is protecting the bacteria from any form of antibiotic, and you can't hide from the virus. You know, we've if we've learned anything, you can't hide from viruses. And now we need to prove that these viruses don't bring along other factors like bacterial uh, that are like the bacterial toxins that cause sepsis. And we also have to prove that they aren't going to unleash any hibernating viruses that might, that might be pathogenic to humans that are embedded in the DNA of bacteria because, unfortunately, viruses love to embed in DNA. And they're not picky. They'll embed in human DNA. You know, that's, that's what shingles is all about. Uh, they'll embed in bacterial DNA. And maybe they come out later. Maybe we bring them out. And that's some of what uh, we are seeing with some of our autoimmune disease, realizing that there are these non-human retroviruses that are embedded 
in our DNA, and these non-human retroviruses have been there for a very, very long time evolutionarily. But every now and then they wake up, and because our immune systems are so vigilant, they cause they they trigger diseases or they, and attacks of things like multiple sclerosis, right? So this dance between the virus and the phage and the bacteria and the human somatic cells, well, it's a big old ecosystem and we need to figure out how to manipulate it without hurting ourselves. Uh, I like this quote and I'll leave you with this. Viruses are like giant fires that start as a single spark and bacteria are more like rust on a bridge. And I think that gives us an idea of the time scale and the type of problem that we're looking at. Looks like we've got another email. So let's see what Gerda says. Can you, uh, Dr. Don, can you discuss the different doses of estradiol in various non-oral formulations? There's only 10 micrograms in the vaginal suppository, but 100 micrograms in one gram of the 0.01% cream. There seems to be way too much estrogen in the cream and patch for me causing mood problems. What are your thoughts about how to achieve a low dose of estrogen given that the 10 microgram uh, vaginal suppository is cost prohibitive? Well, first of all, Gerda, the, uh, the 10 microgram vaginal suppository is primarily intended to have a local effect on the skin of the vagina. It's not really going to do much for your bones uh, or treat hot flashes or any of the other uh, skin tone, uh, Alzheimer's disease, cardiovascular disease, any of the other things that estrogen is good for uh, preventing. You're not going to get that preventative burst probably from that dose of the vaginal. And the reason, a lot of the, normally a lot of the estrogen that we put on our skin as cream does not get to the system. It doesn't all get in. And so you're probably, and when you take it orally, we give doses that are 10 times more than that because we have to get past the liver. And so uh, the point here is that there are these enzymes in our skin and these enzymes in our liver that break down the estrogen before it can actually get into the general circulation. So that's an important factor. If you're getting side effects, mood problems and such, I'd love to have I'd love to see blood levels with you using this cream. It's possible that you have essentially not the strongest skin barrier. And one marker for that may be if you have a history of eczema or uh having lots of skin irritation from a variety of soaps, detergents, other types of products. If that's you, you probably have a mutation in something called filigrin, which is, uh, well, basically skin cell Velcro. And so this Velcro holds the skin cells together and it keeps stuff out. And if you have loose filigrin or absent filigrin, I believe it's a deletion mutation, your skin is is like a colander. It lets too much stuff in, and therefore you might be letting in way more of the uh, cream when you put it on the squamous epithelium, and you so therefore you're getting too big a dose. Now, the thing about creams is you can always take less, and so 
blood levels would be a really good way to figure out what your dose needs to be. Maybe starting out with a tenth, uh, use the same strength cream, but start off with uh, a tenth of a gram and and put and rub that in and then after a couple of uh, say a w- couple of weeks get a blood level and look at your estrogen and if you're not symptomatic then go up double it so now you're taking a fifth of a gram and wait a couple of weeks and check your blood level and correlate that with the moods you know if you start getting mood swings well what's the estrogen level and then you know what to stay below and if that estrogen level it spikes up uh with a full gram, maybe you can find the sweet spot with a smaller dose. I am an advocate for the use of estrogen long-term in older women. I think the benefits far outweigh the risks, and I am constantly fighting battles with Medicare that doesn't want to pay for estrogen in women over 70, and yet is whining about Alzheimer's disease and cardiovascular disease in women, and yet won't cover the preventative agent that we have good data is effective if you start it early. So that's an end of my answer. I hope that will be helpful for you. And I think I have at least answered your question. I'm not sure that my uh, other advice will be helpful, but I'd love to hear from you if you try it. And it is. So uh, let's see what else I can share with you in the time we have left. Let's talk about wound healing. We've got just enough time for this, I think. Uh, chronic wound, wounds are a big problem. I was just talking in the Phage article about how this fellow died from a diabetic foot ulcer. And it's not just amputations you have to worry about. It's also blood poisoning from these things. And chronic wounds often happen in the elderly. It's much harder to heal a surgical wound when you're older. All of those things I was talking about for adhesions, you know, you would wish for a little adhesion is what you would want with some of these people. There's an old Swiss saying that one should never neglect a small wound or a friend in need. And for most people, a small wound is no big deal. But for people with spinal injuries or poor blood circulation, they can't get the trucks with the construction material to the site. And so it's open for longer. That means a greater risk of infection, uh, more problems with it drying out, which seriously kills the fibroblasts. And so how can we do something about this? A group of researchers at Chalmers University of Technology and the University of Freiburg have uh, developed a wound healing method using electrical stimulation, very low level electricity, and they've validated it on experimental models. And uh, it increases the healing rate for wounds quite substantially. Now, I need to describe my early experiences with acupuncture and wound healing. And this goes back to the early 2000s when I had my brand new shiny acupuncture uh, degree and was trying out all sorts of things with my patients at my family practice. And I had a woman who had had uh, her, her pacemaker leads removed and replaced and she had this the wound you know for the the pacemaker that had been placed opened up and it was an old wound it had been healed for a long time and so 
they called it, you know, a non-union. They did surgery. They excised the part that wasn't healing, sewed it back up again. It healed. It looked beautiful. And then about two months later, she called me and she said, I got a boil. It's in a different spot. And sure enough, it opened up. We thought, is she allergic to the suture material? What's going on here? Sent her to the plastics people. They did it again. They excised the whole wound, stitched it up, different suture material. That should take care of it. Well, three months later, bam, another another uh, ulcer, another, rather, I should say, another boil and then another ulcer in a different place. Now, if it was a splinter or a, a foreign body, it would be in a, it would be in the same place right it would keep trying to come out but it wouldn't jump all over this 4 inch wound and the last one was just not healing and the plastic surgeon at this time is like you know i don't know if i should do a, a rotation flap or whatever and i'm like mm, you know let me try electroacupuncture so i did i put uh, needles around the wound hooked it up to an electric stimulator used a what's uh, used a, ra- a rapid frequency, about 15, 20 hertz, to try, uh, and then a hun- alternating with 100 hertz to try and pull blood into the region. Worked great. Tur- thing turned pink. Lots of good blood flow. Did that for about 20 minutes twice a week, and damned if the thing didn't close. And this time, it stayed closed. Every time uh, she would she would get another little boil, and it would start... We would hit it with the acupuncture. It would go down. It would never actually open up and create an ulcer. And then she moved away and it opened up again. And we'd had her closed for about a year, which was the first time she'd had antect skin for a long time. Uh, So I got a letter from her sometime later and she said, you know, I had a pacemaker lead left inside and it was on the back of my heart and this makes no sense in western medicine it makes no sense that it wouldn't heal but it makes complete sense in chinese medicine that the body was trying to reject it through the weak spot which was that wound well that's about all for this week's podcast please go to askdrdon.com for news about our future plans or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.